I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are... The Movie Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we kick it off with the Week in Review, which is our discussion of movies or TV shows we've watched since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main review or topic of discussion, and finish up with film faves, our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. Now, full disclosure, this episode has gone through a lot of uh, trials and errors. Due to technical... Well, first of all, I guess we were originally scheduled to do Nomadland, in case you weren't aware. That apparently was rescheduled for February by the studio. You can't even stream it right now. So that was a last-minute thing. And then because of scheduling issues, we tried recording the weekend review and film faves separate from the main event review. And through issues I've never had before in the past three years, what ended up happening is uh, we recorded a review of Mank as a substitute for the main event, and then we subsequently lost our recording of the Weekend Review and Film Faves. So, with this episode... Excuses, excuses. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Uh, for me, it doesn't really affect you, Shanna, so much. You just sit back and get to watch me uh, pull my hair out. But um, It's great. I don't see it often enough, so it's great. Oh, really? I'm glad you... <laughs> Pull oh, out like your it. popcorn, ladies and gentlemen and folks. <laughs> so for what what remains is our recording of our review of Mank, directed by David Fincher. Let's get on into that main event review. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is why you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. 
But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie, you are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can, especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. <laughs> Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> And that was from the trailer to David Fincher's Mank. The IMDb description of Mank is that the film follows screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz's tumultuous development of Orson Welles' iconic masterpiece, Citizen Kane. The film stars Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, Tom uh, Pelfrey, Arliss Howard, and Tom Burke, as well as Charles Dance. When we review a film, we like to first focus on the good, what we liked about a movie, what we appreciated about it, before moving on to the bad, what sucked about a movie, what didn't work, what flaws we discovered about a film. And then we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad and move on to a spoiler discussion. Yes, and I'd like to add that this film is shot in black and white, or it appears to us in black and white, so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later. Jeff, why don't you tell us about what we need to know about this film before one watches it? That's an interesting question, because what you're supposing is that it, it helps to have a certain kind of knowledge going into the film and i think the obvious point would be to know citizen kane to be familiar with citizen kane to know of Mm -hmm. orson wells and to have seen citizen kane which is essential viewing for any cinephile certainly and anybody i think who has a remote interest in seeing this film i can't really imagine watching this film without having seen citizen kane and actually getting anything out of it. Mm. So uh, in that sense, yes, it's definitely worth starting there (laughs) as a starting point before seeing the film. But you actually raise an interesting point, too, about this movie, which the references and names fly left and right. This is not a film that is a romantic film in the classical sense in that it's uh, you know a lot of films a lot of people what they expect from movies is something that's going to bring about some sort of emotional response be it be it fear be it joy be it being moved and and such like that and i would say that mank is like many of David Fincher's films, more one of intellectualism and less of a, an emotionalism. Now, David, it's not like David Fincher has never made a film that's, that's had emotional drivers in it in any way. I mean, 
he's terrified us in or put us in suspense in films like Seven and The Game and Zodiac or even um, his remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Or even, of, of course, Panic Room as, as well. I haven't seen The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, so I don't know what the emotional response and how successful it was in, in that film. But um, I would say one thing that is also a common thread that you could find in his films, like Fight Club, like The Social Network, is an intellectualism. Right, and some of that is devoted to is to the credit of the screenwriters as well, like Aaron Sorkin. But I think Mank is a film that it's not a movie that's going to um, thrill or move you emotionally. It, it is a film for the cinephile. I think um, as such, as a film for the literate as well. And I say that you mean Hollywood literate film literacy mm. to an extent, even even literacy literacy, because um, the movie, as you were kind of suggesting, it, it drops references left and right to Upton Sinclair, F. Scott Fitzgerald. It mm. mentions shoulder arms, you know, as well as, of course, major players in the film like Irving Thalberg and. Louis B. Mayer and uh, David Selznick um, has a scene in the film. And if you don't know who these people are, you're... You're going to end up like me and have a bit of a difficult time following. Okay. And you're going to interpret the film a little differently to how someone who has all that knowledge is going to interpret it. Now, I did try prepping you a little bit, literally right before. Like one minute before we yeah, watched Yeah, literally. It. That was not good prep. <laughs> well, I, I did what I could, but I knew that certain names were going to be in this movie. And I knew that from what I had heard, it was going to behoove you to have an understanding, if you didn't already, of who these people were going into it. Um, there are certain people like Marion Davies that I even didn't have a familiar familiarity with and learned about through this film. But uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, you needed to know, okay, that's the guy who would eventually write and direct All About Eve, as well as other movies, right? Uh, the main character, Herman Mankiewicz, his brother, you needed to know, okay, well, this guy, he wrote, I think, uh, Dinner at Eight with Gene Harlow, and he would eventually go on to do the pride of the yankees and the pride of st louis and and movies that you haven't seen i i but i have a familiarity with and it, you need to know like who these people are this movie doesn't hold your hand in any way it assumes the audience's intelligence and literacy well and they they tell you that in the film they hope that you are intelligent enough as a viewer to enjoy this film. They're actually talking about Citizen Kane, but they are talking about their own film too. You caught which that too. I thought too. was like, well, that's a little rude if I'm not prepped, isn't it? <laughs> so, but at the same time, it's like, a, hey, we're expecting you to, you know, know what we're talking about mm -hmm. and go along for the ride. I'm so glad that you clued into that. There's a very important scene that you're talking about where uh, there's dialogue that goes back and forth 
that speaks to some of this. And it speaks to another issue, too, I'll get to, I'll circle back to. The dialogue goes, uh, paraphrasing a little bit, one character says, the story, speaking of Citizen Kane, the story is so scattered, you need a road map. And, and another character says, you can't capture a man's whole life in two hours. You can only hope to catch an impression of him. And then another character says... You'll get this, or I think actually the same character later says, "You'll get this, and the audience will too." And uh, I'm I'm really glad that you clued into that scene because yes, I I agree. It's it's probably about 30 minutes into the movie. I think I clocked it when this dialogue, this exchange occurs, and it is obviously speaking to the movie itself because it does it does have this non-linear structure to it and yeah at least for the first half hour or so or the first hour maybe it doesn't really do a lot of hand holding to help the audience know whether or not we're in the past and when we are right and I, I struggled with that at first, but, you know, and it didn't take long for me to realize, okay, so Fincher's really assuming, he's really respecting the audience's intelligence here and really assuming that the audience will follow along and they will eventually get it. And they'll settle in here and they'll start getting into the groove and the pace and the rhythms of this movie. And they'll go along with it, and I think it's a, it's a matter of some of this movie is a matter of not necessarily having all of your questions answered, but getting the gist of what is happening. Uh, so, I guess it's a matter of whether or not if you are someone who is literate as a cinephile, literate as someone who's going to know who Upton Sinclair is and F. Scott just Fitzgerald is, if you're a literate person. Does it work for you or not? It's fair to assume if you aren't literate in all these things that it's you're going to have a hard time with this film. This is not a four quadrant film. This is not a film that is for everybody in the in the bigger like sense of the word. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fair assessment. It's a very niche film. And, uh, you know, for someone like me who doesn't know all the names and the games of Hollywood in the golden era, it's difficult. Uh, What I did focus on was, okay, if this is trying to emulate golden age, are we lighting this particular film correctly? Mm. Are we using the darks, the lights, the shadows, the highlights properly? And I got frustrated in between because it really took me out of the ex- it it seems to take me out of the experience when a film is being sh- is being you know I highly doubt they're you know they're making it black and white they're doing this obviously post it totally takes me out of the movie when lighting is flat and even on a person's face hmm. and there isn't enough there to contrast the face from either the background or from itself. So if we look at Amanda Seyfried's character, she is blonde curls, dark mascara, eyeliner, dark lips, dark background, she pops. But if we look at someone like Gary Oldman, I mean, he just wasn't lit very well most of the time. 
when he was flatly lit, it was awful. It was hard for me to engage with his expressions, his eye movements, anything like that. But the moment they throw some sunlight on him or a little bit extra reflection, then I'm good to go. So I had a hard time with this film in that regard. It kept switching from flat lighting to a little bit of zhuzh Hollywood lighting from the 50s and it bounced. So that was frustrating. The only time that I was happy was when they were in a room that had shades. Is that what those are? Okay. The the blinds, Uh you know? Yeah. And then smoke because that would create the diagonal lights, darks, that is pretty common. And then if an actress was being, really it was Amanda Seyfried's character, was being close up on, you saw the sort of alabaster looking skin, hmm. you saw the contrast, you saw, you know, that, that little bit. And so it was a little infuriating. Well, let I mean, me, let me, uh, the only thing I will point out to you is you claim that the movie was shot in color and then probably color corrected to black and white apparently one thing that david fincher insisted on that actually led to the film film's creation being delayed by 20 years was he insisted on shooting the film in black and white okay well somebody needed to get on gary oldman's face because i was not pleased one little bit this Mm. is not hard to do it is not hard to emulate the 1950s Hollywood black and white, it's not difficult. And they should have done that throughout the film. I'm not really sure why they didn't. So you think it's an accident, not intentional? I don't mean to assume I know everything. However, from my photography background, I was disappointed in the inconsistencies of this film. I Mm. know they're not trying to make drama with certain lighting. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're going 1950s Hollywood... 40s. Uh, sorry. 30s, actually. But yeah. Regardless, Hollywood lighting mm-hmm. of the black and white era. The golden age, yeah. Thank you. It's not hard to do. Get it right. Go study a couple frames. Not even a lot. Mm-hmm. There is always contrast. There is always a bright white. And there is always a blackest dark. Mm-hmm. So And everything in between. So I was just... Really annoyed with that. The cinematographer uh, for Point of Credit is Eric Messerschmidt, who apparently worked on Fincher's Netflix series Mindhunter. And this is his first feature film uh, after doing that series. What other thoughts do you have? Is there anything? Let's focus on the, the rest some of, of the, what I don't know. Well, the good. <laughs> what, what did you like about Mank? What did you appreciate? Well, because the good shots were few and far in between, every time I got a good shot, I was like, thank you. Anyway, moving on from shots and cinematography. There were cute things, like there was, as he enters the MGM Studios, you see kind of, or was it Paramount Pictures? It was probably Paramount. You see those kind of big props along the side, huge heads and It was probably MGM, actually. I don't think he ever comes to Paramount in the film. Okay. Because Louis B. Mayer is um, head of MGM. There was nice, lovely, lively music mm-hmm. happening that was reminded me of that era. I just saw the score it was done once again by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. And apparently they insisted on using only instruments that were period accurate. Well, that's great. That's good. 
I look, I like the themes of how alcoholism may give you a brief moment of creativity or whatever tool you're addicted to uh-huh. may give you this these brief moments of creativity and product productivity as well but ultimately it destroys other things such as relationships that are personal networking and then yourself eventually so that's a great theme they seem to carry that through pretty well um also you know sort of the enabling of an addiction uh seem to to work very well for me and also empathizing with the person who has the addiction. Another thing that was interesting or something that I took from this film, not knowing much about what we've just talked about, seems to be that this movie is about the good old boys club in Hollywood and how you'll you'll get burned even if you are brilliant. So I thought that was interesting. That's basically all I have about this film. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we're both still processing the film, having just finished it 20 minutes before recording. And it's definitely one of the more interesting films about Hollywood, about movies, about behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, to that point, some people are claiming this is a love letter to movies. Oh, I don't think it's a love letter. I think it's like a... I don't know. I'm just going to shut my mouth. No, no, no. Keep going. Please. I I don't feel like it's a love letter. Like a love letter is I'm in love with you. There's nothing you can do wrong. I see no darkness in your eyes or your soul. No, this is showing like dark little bits of Hollywood Mm. and how the influence of filmmaking can be used uh, to sway people even if promises can't be delivered, specifically with politics. And that was interesting. It was good they mentioned it, uh, especially in the time we're living in right now. But uh, things always come back around, of course. And, like We're also looking at how, oh, everybody needs to take a pay cut except the high, high ups. And it's, it's just, it's really interesting to me like that people are describing it as a love letter. It is not a love letter. It's yeah. a, hey, I'm going to call you out on your shit, even though I appreciate you, Hollywood, for making films. You have a dark side, too. It's not all dark in this film, but it's definitely calling out Hollywood on its shit. Well, hearing you say that, it kind of gets my wheels turning and thinking, no, it's not a love letter to films. This is not The Artist. This is not Hugo. This is not so many other movies Mm -hmm. that are giving movies a big wet kiss. This is, if anything, it is a love letter to screenwriters. You know, it is a love letter to Citizen Kane, but everything that you were just talking about, I think it is illustrative of people in in power. And of course, William Randolph Hearst was a man of major influence and major power who who was somewhat parabled in Citizen Kane. Right. It's no um, secret that Citizen Kane is, in many ways, about William Randolph Hearst, and that's why Hearst came after that movie, and the movie flopped, right? But there's a lot about William Randolph Hearst in, the, in this film, Mank. There's a lot about the Irving Thalbergs and the Louis B. Mayers of the Hollywood system. There's even a lot about a governor race in California and who's on 
which side of things um, Upton Sinclair is is represented as the socialist. And there is some messages, there's some lines of dialogue that are very resonant to the past year of uh, politics that we've heard, where there's been this fear of socialism and and um, this this fear of of our American way of life being lost to socialist uh, candidate or something, right? When a lot of a lot of what is being talked about on the other side is really more of the interest of the working class people, right? And and what's in their best interest, and mm-hmm. we'll, and and that kind of goes to some of what you were just speaking to, with I'm guessing Louis B. Mayer. He makes this plea saying that in order for MGM to survive in the Great Depression, um, everyone has to take a 50% pay cut for eight weeks. And your understanding is he's he's kind of the exception. The higher-ups are the exception to that pay cut, yeah? Yeah, that's what I gathered from that. Yeah, that sounds very familiar to more recent times, right? Where a lot of people are saying, well, what about like senators or whatever? How come? What about the people that only earn $250 a week and they have to take this? What was it? 50%? Yeah. A 50% cut for eight weeks. Right. Well, they're going to get behind on their rent. They're going to get behind on groceries. Like, yeah. And that's definitely, that's definitely uh, something that has resonance today. And we've heard that. Uh, in the past year or two, and especially with the pandemic, you know, okay, well, there's so many people who are going without work, and and what sort of pay cut are those who are in charge taking as well, and all in order to help things survive, all that sort of stuff. So there is a subtext to this film that, that makes it relevant today as well. But um, I definitely don't think that it is a film that is a love letter to cinema. Uh-uh. It is a love letter. I mean, the thing is definitely on the screenwriter side, right? For all the screenwriter, yeah. um, um, is his faults, right? But it is on his side. Yeah, and I, I know you're saying, oh, it's a love letter to screenwriters. I just don't. I feel like the the phrase love letter in cinema is supposed to be we're showing you the joyous feelings and a little bit of sad and a little bit of anger i didn't get a sense of joy from this movie i didn't get a sense of i barely got a sense of accomplishment from mac even when he was feeling like he laid down the law like i want my credit line that that was a pretty good her brave moment i'm sure for screen screenwriters everywhere I well, still I mean, feel like love letter is not the right word. I think it's more like, hey, writers, we see you, we acknowledge you, you deserve the credit you deserve. I think maybe we're splitting hairs here. I understand okay, the, sure. the term to be more just, <laughs> of one of appreciation. It's, and, it's and, a thing that I can attach to and can talk about with this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm kind of going on. But, I mean, it, it, it's a... It's a phrase of, of appreciation right and this sure. movie is about one of the most underappreciated screenwriters or, mm-hmm. or for for one of the most celebrated films of all time right and so like what better way to say i see you screenwriters and i appreciate you than to focus on herman mankiewicz at this time of his career 
I think it would be great if you got onto IMDb and told us all of his credits. Ah, okay. Uh, well, there was several. So Herman Mankiewicz, he, he wrote a lot of films, so I'm not going to read all of them. It's 95 film credits here. Okay. Uh, some of it may be because of remakes or whatever. Some of it's because he wrote, he did some additional dialogue work on a film. He didn't necessarily write the whole thing, but uh, he did, as I mentioned before, such films as um, Dinner at Eight, which was an ensemble film that starred, I think, Lionel Barrymore and Gene Harlow. Big breakthrough role with uh, Gene Harlow. Uh, He did, let's see, a lot of uncredited work. He worked a little bit on Wizard of Oz. Again, contributed, uncredited. Uh, Wizard of Oz, by the way, is is also referenced in this movie. I did like how that was mentioned. He Um, seemed really perturbed about the project. After Citizen Kane, he would go on to... (laughs) Citizen Kane was by no means the end of his career. He worked for another 10 years. He did The Pride of the Yankees with Gary Cooper... He did The Pride of St. Louis, which is another baseball movie uh, about Jerome Dizzy Dean, a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals and Chicago Clubs. But uh, yeah, he did 95 different movies. But those are the most notable of his work that people are familiar with or might be familiar with today, uh, most likely, especially Citizen Kane and Dinner at Eight and The Pride of the Yankees. Well, that's all interesting to know. I'm glad that he kept getting credit after Citizen Kane. It sounds like Citizen Kane by far is our favorite. Yeah, I, I'm actually not sure if he got credit posthumously, like much later or mm. what, because there do, does seem to be a bit of debate after a certain point in the 70s that I saw something about Pauline Kael, the famous critic, disputing oh. the idea that Orson Welles didn't write the script and all this sort of stuff, but... Obviously, this film is depicting and seems to be factualizing that Orson Welles took the script that he hired Mankiewicz to write and he um, did another draft of it or something, you know, worked it a little bit more. And thus, maybe he that earned him some credit. But I oh know, actually, I'm completely wrong about the credit because there was the whole Oscar thing, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was I was waiting for you to finish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, allowing me to come to my own correction, I guess. Well, you know, self-reflection is very important. Yes, it is, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, so there is some debate about to what extent Orson Welles worked on the script and how much credit really should go to him at any rate. That, that, that is actually a thing. Any other thoughts about the film? Anything you didn't like about the movie? Anything else uh, that you wanted to discuss about the movie? It is possible that as my knowledge of Hollywood history evolves, I could go back to this film and see it differently. I don't think that this movie is entirely satisfying to me right now, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I am glad it's out there for people such as you. Why is that? Because you know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> you don't have to look up anything, you know, while while everything's being dropped here and there. I mean, there was one part that I thought was interesting in MGM when he brings his, Mank brings his brother in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way they spitball ideas, or it's not even spitballing, it's 
oh, hey, we're going to come and present our new oh, film idea. The pitch to Selznick, yes. Mm-hmm. It was so chaotic. You thought it was chaotic. It was chaotic. such bullshit. Yeah, that's I true. was like, there's no way anyone could possibly take you seriously now, I would think. Like... I was... I was trying to f- see if I could figure out what movie it was they were talking about, but it must be like just complete nonsense movie that, you know, if it, if it did exist as an idea, it definitely wasn't one that was produced because it's, um, it felt so derivative of Frankenstein from 33. And I don't know. understand why they did it. Like, were they, t- uh, you know, and then later they say something about, oh, MGM has so many right- like writers by the dozen. Like, as if they don't value anyone's one opinion and, oh, we can push the blame to this person or that person, not one person gets the boot kind of thing. Hmm. I just thought it was so odd Hmm. and and hope that, like, no one gets away with that in any discipline that's around right now. Hmm. That's all I have to say about this film. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? I wanted to throw credit to Charles Dance and Amanda Seyfried. I think yeah. Charles Dance is really uh, great as William Randolph Hearst here. And Amanda Seyfried, anything, anytime she's on screen, she's basically mm-hmm. like this ray of sunshine that kind of brightens up the film a little bit and, and maybe offers just a degree of that romantic appeal in the sense that she brings something outside of just the intellectualism and the understanding of the events and the, and the relationships. Yeah. I think she did a great performance. I didn't see her, you know, I saw this character Yeah, and I thought that that was, that was lovely. You know, this is definitely going to be a movie that's going to be talked about in terms of the awards season and stuff. And I'm sure that people will be talking about Gary Oldman as someone who, you know, a nominee for an acting award. But honestly, I kind of think maybe less so much. Not that I fault Gary Oldman in any way, but in terms of best performances of the year. I would actually probably, if anything, from this movie, I would say, eh, how about a supporting nod to Amanda Seyfried? Yeah, yeah, there's certain things. I've just finished watching America's Next Top Model, and the reason I'm mentioning this show is because uh, Tyra Banks speaks specifically about minute body movements and how they communicate certain things. And there's this one scene where Amanda Seyfried has just arrived to Gary Oldman, and she shows her head, you know, that it's her in the car, but then she twists her head as if to say something else. Mm-hmm. And just that little scene there really did something for me. I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting that she used her body that way. Mm-hmm. And like everything was on her face and all these emotions and communications that were occurring. It was, it was really fascinating. Just that one scene there and everything else, you know? I think she is uh, somewhat of an underrated actress. I don't know Mm -hmm. that I see her as much as I should. I've been following her for the better part of 20 years, I think. I'm trying to look to see her earliest work. I want to say the earliest thing that I saw her in was um, Mean Girls. And yes, actually, Mean Girls is the earliest thing I apparently saw her in. She also was in Veronica Mars and 
Of course, people have seen her in Mamma Mia. I am not someone who saw her in Mamma Mia, but I have seen her in Jennifer's Body, Chloe. I I, first was introduced to her in Big Love. Okay. I don't think that she's gotten enough of the roles that is deserving of her talent. I see a lot Mm -hmm. of crappy movies, a lot of crappy roles, or movies that didn't pan out like Lovelace, maybe as great as she thought they might be. You mentioned Les Mis. I forgot she was in Les Mis. But anyway, I think that this is a really great role and a really great performance. Yeah, and you're right. She deserves to be acknowledged for that. Yeah, definitely. So I just want to give a little bit of a shout out uh, to her. So, Shanna, what do you rate? How do you rate Mank uh, out of 10? I'd probably give it a five. Ooh, very mediocre review. And where where do you rank this in David Fincher's films that you've seen? So, look, nothing really compares to Seven or, in my book, Gone Girl. Zodiac is really good for me. And then Fight Club is just, you know, one of those those really interesting ones. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think that this is any better than those. Uh, You know, I can throw a social network in there. I know you have, like, did that make your top 12 social network? In terms of favorites of all time? Yeah. No. Oh, good. So I will keep hearing about this film. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. You and your little love letter to Social Network. Oh, boy. So, y- you know, it's what? It's like six. Se- uh, number six of all his. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, I give the film an eight out of ten. So I definitely appreciated the movie more than you it's not a movie that I can say I love or as a favor. I probably would put it in the middle of his overall filmography. I put it above movies like The Game and Panic Room um, and and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm. But, you know, certainly below films like Seven and Social Network and Zodiac and, and maybe below Gone Girl even. So somewhere right smack dab in the middle of the films I have seen of his. Mm-hmm. I think Benjamin Button's the only one I haven't seen of his. I saw that a while ago. I, I don't recall it too well. Mm. Uh, so that's our review of Mank. What did you think of Mank? And let us know. Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. You can find it on Netflix right now. That'll about do it for this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shannon, before we talk about the next episode, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography. See you there. Or you can go and look at my out-of-date flick chart account, Spellbinding A. How about it's not you? I have a feeling you make it sound way worse than it actually is. I think is. the number one is accurate, but everything else is kind of all over the place. Yeah, but I mean, like you've got a few hundred on there, right? Yeah, but it doesn't mean that they're properly ranked. Okay, well that's a whole lot of that. That's very hard to do on Flickchart. I'm on Flickchart as well. The Gibson 99, the main source for everything. With the movie lovers and other things is thegibsonreview.com. That's the main blog. You'll find old episodes of the movie lovers on there as well as many features. We're finishing off the 10-year anniversary of the movie, or not the movie lovers, the 10-year anniversary of the Gibson Review. I've been doing features of favorites of all time. It also kind of finishes off, caps off our own journey through the podcast of our journey backwards through time. We did our 12 favorite movies. Well, I've been doing 
my 50 favorite actors, 50 favorite actresses, 25 favorite directors, and soon you will see a number of features outlining my 100 favorite movies of all time to finish off the 10th anniversary celebration of the Gibson Review being in existence. So look for that. Go to the Gibson 99 on Instagram to participate in polls. I think we had a couple polls recently complete, if I'm not mistaken. We did your favorite 2014 movie? No, 2013 movie and your favorite 2012 movie. That resulted in being, let's see, your favorite 2013 movie was actually pretty dark, pretty heavy. You love the serious stuff for 2013. That ended up being Prisoners by Denis Villeneuve. 2012, your favorite 2012 uh, movie ended up being Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. Keep an eye out on the Gibson 99 on Instagram for more movie poll fun on there. You can also go to the Gibson Review at facebook.com. Next episode, we're going to be working towards wrapping up the year 2020. It's about time. Thank goodness. Can't wait for it to be over. With our 2020 roundup, where we will be knocking out just a bunch of reviews of a bunch of movies from this year, which will lead up eventually to our 2020 in review episode. So the 2020 roundup you can find on Tuesday, December 22nd. A nice little early Christmas gift for you. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.